2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books and Religion, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. Why are Americans and American politicians more specifically obsessed with sex? Why, in the words of Janet Jacobson, are gender and sexuality such riveting public policy concerns in the United States? In The Sex Obsession, Perversity and Possibility in American Politics, Jacobson answers this question by breaking apart the standard narrative that religion is primarily responsible for the moral regulation of sexuality. Instead, Jacobson proposes taking a kaleidoscopic approach to better understand the dynamics of sexual politics. Using this approach, Jacobson analyzes sex when it is the focus of the discussion and demonstrates how sex remains consequential even when it appears to be on the periphery. Jacobson's kaleidoscopic approach allows the reader to see the complex dynamics of sexual politics and challenges the assumption that religion is the basis for sexual values. Janet Jacobson is Claire Tau Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Barnard College, Columbia University. Hi, Janet, and welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate this chance to talk with you.
1: It's absolutely my pleasure. Um, so let's start by talking about the origins of this project. What made you want to write *The Sex Obsession*?
0: Yes, I often ask myself that question. Um, it has the book has sort of two um, uh, uh, points of origin. One is a longer term genesis, which is about a series of uh, collaborative projects that I've participated in um, ever since really I um, came to Barnard College and took up the directorship of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, which I um, did for 15 years. Um, And those are collaborations across uh, uh, disciplines amongst scholars. For example, I'm currently uh, involved in two uh, transnational projects, one with my colleague Elizabeth Bernstein in sociology on gender justice and Um, economic justice, and one with my colleague at Columbia, Laila Abulugod, on uh, gender and the framing of violence in relation to discourse about religion. Um, And also just, uh, I co-write a lot because I believe in collaboration. And most importantly, especially for the origin of this book with Anne Pellegrini on two projects, one called Love the Sin, Sexual Regulation, and the Limits of Religious Tolerance, and the other called uh, Secularisms, which is a a global project about religion and secularism. And then finally, at the Barnard Center for Research on Women, there were a lot of um, collaborations between activists and academics that were about producing uh, knowledge in the context of social movements. And uh, those also were really formative to the book. Uh, and then I stepped down from BCRW in 2015, and I was interested in what was happening around me. And as you know, that was the start of the U.S. election cycle. Um, and literally, I stepped down on, on June 30th and um, a few weeks before Donald Trump had announced his a candidacy for the presidency of the United States with that trip down the elevator and his denunciation in particular of, of immigrants around questions of sexual violence. And so I really wanted to respond to that um, and to the ways in which um, it, the idea that that type of appeal to, um, you know, some sense of uh, Uh, xenophobia and sexual violence could be the opening um, uh, commitment by a candidate for the presidency of the United States uh, is a very serious thing. And so I wanted to respond to that. Um, And what I found was in doing research uh, over the past five years is that the United States is sort of trapped in a political discourse that um, is divided between um, some idea that there are religious conservatives who embody that conservative conservativism most importantly through sexual conservatism, um, and uh secular liberals um, who are dedicated uh to including gender equality and sexual freedom. Um, and that idea of a division between those two was everywhere. It was the common sense of American political discourse. You could find it in liberal publications. You know, I start out with a quote from the New Yorker in part because it's seen as one of the most you know, sort of bastions of uh, American liberalism in, in the popular press. Um, um, and you could find it in conservative places too. And so I tried to understand this opposition Why is it common sense when, for those of us who are trained in religious studies, as I am, um, the presumption that there is any singular position um, in what's broadly called religion on um, gender and sexuality is simply not true. Um, And yet, trying to say it's not true uh, in political discourse, you you just sort of disappear from the scene. So um, people who have uh, various types of uh, sexual com- commitments across religions or historical diversity across religion just are not available at all in um, public discourse. And I document some of that in the book. Um, and what I found was that this um, opposition between religious conservatism and sexual sec- secular liberalism, um, uh, which we in religious studies would not find to be accurate, uh, nonetheless held political discourse in place. And it held it in place in an opposition That we were stuck in. There were two sides of an argument and only two. And each side was to be tolerated. um, You know, in Love the Sin, Anne and I talk a lot about um, the the ways in which some idea of tolerance forms political discourse in the United States. So we contrast, for example, religious tolerance to a broader, more open sense of religious freedom. Um, And what that produces is a stuckness. We go back and forth and back and forth between these two sides. And also a way in which we start to have to tolerate hate. That's what we say in I Love the Sin. And you can see it in the ways in which we have come in the United States to tolerate all kinds of, um, you know, very serious um, uh, white supremacy um, and take it as simply the representation of one side of political argument. And, um, you know, this was, again, um, uh, shown most clearly by our current presidents. You know, there are good people on both sides in relation to a white supremacist march in in, um, uh, Charlottesville. But the overall sense of needing to be tolerant toward these two sides rather than any substantive engagement with them uh, was part of what I was trying to get at. and, and, And hopefully create some space where it might be easier to talk in ways that are not stuck in this opposition.
1: So I'm wondering if we could unpack this opposition that you're Mm -hmm. pointing to um, a little bit. So um, religious conservatism versus secular liberalism. Um, What is the root of this opposition and why do we tend to see these two as a a binary?
0: Yeah, that's a a really great and helpful question. So um, first of all, the way that the binary gets produced is by a series of... Um, a series that repeatedly narrows political um, discourse. So, for example, when we talk about religion in public life, what is really meant, at least in the U.S., is not religion to core all the different ways in in which people live religious lives um, uh, through the centuries or in different areas of the world or even across different communities in the U.S. Rather, what is really meant is Christianity, right? And we can see this in the way that Uh, religious freedom is currently invoked in the United States, in which religious freedom historically in the U.S. courts has almost always been applied as um, applying mostly to Christian claims, not always or completely, but mostly. And certainly now it's Christian claims that stand up in in the U.S. Supreme Court. So, for example, when the court took up um, uh, the current administration's ban on travel from Muslim-majority countries, Uh, Religious freedom was not central to the ways in which the court decided that that uh, ban was, in fact, constitutional. It was not invoked there. So religion gets narrowed to Christianity. Christianity then also gets narrowed. The diversity among positions across Christians in the United States is narrowed to an assumption that Christianity itself is conservative, and it's conservative about values, and then those values are about sex. Um, And so what happens is we get something in which um, the broad diversity of uh, the way that people live their lives gets narrowed to a very um, specific idea in which religion and Christianity and conservative Christianity and sexually conservative Christianity all become seen as um, uh, uh, synonyms, as reference to the same thing. Um, And so it's that narrowing of public discourse that that I'm concerned about. Um, And, you know, this comes from a couple of different places. One is what we in religious studies would call Christian hegemony. And what we think about in relation to that is the development of the idea of religion itself. Um, And we, um, Anne and I, in secularisms argue that that development comes in part from the division between uh, religiosity and secularism in European and American modernity. So that, for example, within the Catholic Church historically, there used to be um, secular clerics and religious clerics, depending on um, what type of uh, priest, for example, one might be. Um, But then secularism became something that was separate from religion, and it became, secularism became the framework uh, within which we understood what religion was. And that idea that, um, you know, when we study, you know, in a secular university, for example, religion, we're studying something that fits a particular category, ties religion and secularism together. And it also turns out that historically, religion was based on the model of Christianity. Um, So, uh, for example, there's a a book... um, by a scholar named David Chittister in South Africa that talks about the ways in which the colonial period saw um, responses to religious practices in South Africa as either just like European um, Christianity or completely different depending on what was happening in the colonial period, but it was always in relation to a Christian understanding of what religion is. And so that's what we mean by Christian hegemony in the study of religion. And that contributes to this narrowing of political discourse I'm talking about. And then within the United States specifically, there's a particular brand of Christian nationalism that is um, helped along by this Christian hegemony. If religion means Christianity, then to say that religion, uh, that the U.S. is a religious nation is also the same as saying that it's a Christian nation. And that's then tied to a whole history of the United States that, again, most scholars in religion do not see as accurate. Um, but it is the idea that the country was founded on um, Christian ideas and principles. And, um, you know, of course, first of all, this erases uh, the indigenous people um, who were here um, and to have their own practices, which we may or may not think of as religious. Um, and um, in relation in erasing indigeneity, right, we get a story of a founding of the country and then Um, that founding was much more complex um, and the commitments that people had was much more complex uh, than what we usually think of um, in the singular sort of uh, the Puritans came to the United States and that formed the entire uh, understanding of of, uh, Christian nationalism in in the United States. So um, those sources, these narratives about what religion is and narratives about what the United States are, then play into this specific question of religion and sexu- sexuality.
1: So I'm gonna ask you my next question, but it might be a little bit repetitive. But I just wanna okay. make sure we um, unpack this before moving on. So in the book, you challenge the, um, the standard and simplistic, um, you argue, a narrative that religion drives sexual politics and is the primary force behind sexual regulation. Why is it important to break this narrative down?
0: Yeah, so just to give you an example here, and this is from one of those projects at the Barnard Center for Research on Women that I was talking about. I worked um, on a project with uh, um, an activist named uh, Taloma Jaya Singha, who was at the time um, director of Saki for South Asian Women, which is a local organization in in New York that addresses sexual violence in South Asian community. Um, And um, Saki, in trying to address uh, domestic violence, found itself trapped in this opposition. Where on the one hand, um, you know, it was e- if we assume that religion is the source of sexual regulation and of gender hierarchy, then religion is somehow um, a, a problem that is driving domestic violence. And we can, um, you know, argue that there are all kinds of other things that contribute to domestic violence. You know, economic anxiety, other, um, you know, commitments to Uh, gender hierarchy that are shared across secular and religious sources, etc. But the idea that religion is a special problem in relation to violence then put the South Asian immigrant community in a very problematic place because they would somehow have to undo their commitments to religion in order to address sexual violence, right? So that the opposition is then set up. You can either supposedly choose Um, you know, gender equality or religious commitment. You can't have them both when in fact in the community, there are many people who are committed to both things, including people who participate in Saki. And then on the other side of the opposition, the secular state is seen as the protector of this secular freedom when in fact, What um, many South Asians found, particularly Muslims, after um, September 11, 2001 found, was that the secular state and the uh, policing was not a site of protection and help, but a site of surveillance and sometimes threat to the community as a whole. Um, So that violence, the violence of the secular state that the community faced, disappeared. It was very hard to talk about because violence and gender violence in particular supposedly came from religion. And so what they set out to do was a project that ended up being called uh, Responding to Violence Restoring Justice, was, which was to find ways of addressing domestic violence that did not require giving up religious commitment, and that didn't require necessarily calling upon the sexu- secular state that, was, that were more about mutual aid and helping people to find um, economic security, for example, and um, finding ways for people to... Tell their narratives in the complex way that they experience them without having to fit into a one side or the other kind of simplistic narrative. Um, so, that project shows how this narrative, the religion secular narrative, um, traps not just politics, but people, um, and how telling different types of stories can open up possibilities uh, that would make it easier to um, do the work that Saki is trying to do in, in addressing um, domestic violence.
1: So you use the image of a spiraling kaleidoscope um, in order to better understand the complex dynamics of intersecting issues such as sex, gender, race, class, migration, nationalism, capitalism, globalization, healthcare, and war, to name a few. Um, Can you describe the image of the kaleidoscope and how, in your estimation, it offers a more thorough understanding of sexual politics?
0: All right. Um, so what I've been describing so far um, is a back and forth oscillation uh, between these two poles of, uh, you know, supposed opposition. And we see this a lot where we move back and forth, uh, uh, you know, between pro and anti um, on, on various issues uh, without being able to break out into a different kind of convers- conversation. Um, and, um, one of the things I was thinking about in the book is how would we try to describe this different kind of conversation? And, um, I started with the concept that uh, black feminists have developed, um, uh, which is usually associated with, um, Kimberly Crenshaw's, uh, early articles, um, on, uh, intersectionality. Patricia Hill Collins has also developed, um, important work along these lines. Um, and I started thinking about, um, intersectionality in a dynamic fashion? How do we talk about the ways in which issues are related to each other um, and yet are also moving around each other and um, uh, sometimes coming to the fore and sometimes, uh, you know, moving to the back, uh, 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 the background of of a given image? So, Um, You know, just as an example, um, as I was doing my analysis of the public discourse around the 2016 elections, and as you may know, the U.S. um, is often described as being uh, caught in a culture war um, between, again, you know, sort of conservatives, sexual conservatives and and, um, more liberal positions. And the way that that um, uh, culture war was described, it seemed that it was always moving. So people would say, oh, you know. The 2016 culture war is very different. It's not about gender and sexuality any longer, although it clearly was. um, uh, There clearly was a lot of interest in the question of what would happen with judicial appointments, which has, in fact, been central to the current administration. Um, But um, instead, there were arguments that it was about economic anxiety or um, that again, immigration was the central issue, and immigration had in fact been a persistent concern in the culture wars, uh, uh, starting from uh, Pat Buchanan's speech uh, about this in uh, support of uh, George Bush's election, and so in the early 90s. Um, and so, uh, what we saw, uh, what I saw, was this sense that issues were brought to the fore and others pushed to the background when in fact they were interrelated. They formed a pattern together. They were, to go back to the Black feminist term, they were intersectional. Um, And so I wanted to find a way to describe that movement in relation to each other. Um, and, And what I came to realize is that what this movement did was make it seem as if everything was, uh, knew again by focusing on a single issue and we didn't have to analyze um, in our political life the ways in which these interrelations had persistent effects. So just to give you um, one example, um, which is the way in which we think about sexuality as about a certain set of issues. So there's, you know, gender issues around equal pay, um, gender equality, domestic violence, um, transgender rights, um, and then there's sexual issues around same-sex marriage and and um, contraception, reproductive justice. Um, those issues are generally recognized as about gender and sexuality, and they go back and forth in this oscillating way. But I also did an analysis of where gender and sexuality showed up in other issues that were moving around um, each other and around gender and sexuality, and these would be economic. Equality and justice. They would be uh, race and racism in the United States. They would be um, immigration, healthcare, uh, home uh, housing policy, um, and and the, like the environment, war and peace. And um, what I found was that in that movement, oh, today we're talking about gender and sexuality, but um, it's only these issues. But when it's in relation to other issues, in fact, there's some consistency. Gender and sexual regulation are. Um, used by both Democratic and Republican administrations, for example, in holding in place a relatively uh, narrow set of of policy interests. Um, So, um, you know, the ways in which, for example, um, someone like Bill Clinton would appeal to Uh, tropes about specifically race and gender and sexuality around his uh, effort to do what he called end welfare as we know it. He had campaigned on this in 1992. Um, That his use of gender and sexual regulation around ideas about teenage pregnancy, which uh, Bill Bradley, who was senator from New Jersey at the time, very clearly states in the congressional record, this is code for young, poor women of color. Um, and um, he appealed to these tropes as a way to make a major change to the Social Security Act of 1935 and changing aid to families with dependent children. Um, so you would not expect that kind of sexual conservatism, which is really what it was, and uh, you know, an invocation of, of racist imagery as a way to promote economic policy. You know, Clinton also famously campaigned on the idea that It's the economy, stupid, that the the economy was separate from, for example, these cultural war issues. But in fact, he used them just as much. I don't know if just as much, but he certainly used them in ways that were similar to the ways that Republicans um, uh, use them. And it's that consistency um, in which we have a kaleidoscope where the pieces of the pattern move in relation to each other, but the patterns um, still are held within uh, the, the center of the kaleidoscope. So I don't make as much of the, this as I might, but by the end, uh, you kind of, I think, have to uh, think about ways maybe to break open the kaleidoscope even. Um, but I'm trying to track those dynamics, which produce what I call mobility for stasis. So we see movement on, gen, on gender and sexuality. We see movement between gender and sexuality is now the important thing. And uh, next week, it's economics. Um, and yet what we end up with is, is a relatively constrained political discourse.
2: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Um, I'm going to ask you about mobility for stasis, but in a minute, so I'll pause Mm -hmm. there. Before we move on, though, I'm just wondering if we could, um, if you could share with us another example or two. You mentioned um, Clinton with um, welfare and it's it's about about the economy, stupid. I think is what the slogan Mm -hmm. was. Um, But can you bring up another example or two that really show us the Um, what you're trying to demonstrate with this kaleidoscope imagery here with,
0: yeah. Yeah. One of the things that happens is when you pull an issue out as a single issue, right? So when you look at what's only at the center of the pattern in the kaleidoscope and you don't look at its relation to um, other issues, what happens is that those other issues can operate without um, with great power and yet without um, taking responsibility for them. So just to go back to the welfare reform example, and then I'll, I'll return to what some of the other examples are as I looked at different um, presidential administrations. When I read the congressional record for, uh, about the, the debate over welfare reform, I did what is called coding, and what that means is is that you track how many times references to different themes show up. And the way we used to do this, now you can do it with uh, you know digital uh, tools almost instantly. But we would highlight literally go through the text and highlight uh, in different colors. And so in this example, I was using green for economic issues because it was supposed to be the economy only, uh, as Clinton presented it, and pink for this talk about teenage pregnancy and, and uh, gender and sexuality. Um, and what I found in the congressional record, it surprised even me, which was there was a few greens here and there, a little bit of talk of the economy, you know, some reference to the law that was being changed, the Social Security Act, but mostly it was just pink. It was just gender and sexuality. When I did the same thing around um, the news reporting, it was quite the opposite. There was a real focus in the news reporting on, oh, you know, we're ending welfare, we're changing, you know, the structure of the welfare state, and the ways in which gender and sexuality had propelled this argument was much less apparent. Um, and so part of what I was trying to do, trying to do with the idea of the kaleidoscope is show the ways in which, oh, when we focus only on the economy, gender and sexuality operates powerfully. Senator after senator is talking about it. And yet, um, uh, when we think about the issue, we are not saying, is this really how we want to think about um, the the Social Security Act? Do we really want to think about it, about um, whether teenage young women have children or not? Um, And in fact, one of the things that came out of uh, the bill that was eventually passed and signed by President Clinton um, is support for something that's called marriage promotion. And for every administration since that time, so, you know, Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama and the current administration, all of them um, have spent millions and millions of dollars on what's called marriage promotion as a response to poverty. So the idea is, well, if you could just get married and stay married, then you would somehow, you know, not be facing the economic security of, of um, you know, low wages and and um, jobs without benefits and the like. You would uh, be able to move out of po- poverty. And this idea that gender and sexuality, marriage, is the answer to problems with poverty in the United States in a time which, from the 1990s, has seen this intense. Um, uh expansion of economic inequality is rarely talked about there's there's rarely any sense that we're taking gender and sexuality seriously even though um that is a major you know piece of of the policy platform of all of these different administrations
1: this might seem like a simple question but i'm just curious about unpacking it so mm-hmm. why do gender and sexuality appear i'm thinking of your pink highlighter um yeah. highlighting yeah Uh, Why, why do gender and sexuality appear in issues that seemingly have little to do with gender and sexuality? What is the purpose of, of, of this? Why does this happen? Yeah,
0: two things. Um, and, and, um, uh, one uh, so there, are two scholars, Lauren Berlant and Lisa Dugan, say that gender and sexuality in U.S. political discourse are both overvalued and undervalued, and we can see this in the way that that things worked out uh, with my, my my pink highlighter, right? So you know, thinking that teenage mothers were a great threat to the nation, you know, um, I have a colleague named Tracy West who read read all of Clinton's speeches and and um, demonstrates the ways in which. Uh, Clinton's, you know, talking about teenage motherhood repeatedly in different sites um, was central to his um, uh, argument that we needed to, quote, end welfare as we know it, right? That's an overvaluing of sexuality. It is not the case that that uh, young women having children are the sources of poverty in the United States. Um, and then there's an undervaluing of gender and sexuality, which is that we deny that, in fact, gender and sexuality are central to, for example, economic policy, even as we enshrine ideas about gender and sexuality all over the place. Um, So our housing policy is very dedicated to the production of single family homes, even though that is probably not best for the environment, that it creates all kinds of challenges for um, housing in urban areas where housing is very, very expensive. Um, And we just have a great deal of difficulty acknowledging that we've organized housing around one specific idea about a, you know, a relationship um, in a single family, married and two children, um, when that's not necessarily how people live and it's not necessarily the way in which to create a situation in which people can best care for each other. So for example, in this pandemic, one of the things we've seen is um, how challenging it is when people are thrown back on these individual units um, and when many people are then left living alone, um, and people then go outside familiar, familial uh, units. They try to form pods or quarantines or find other ways to um, connect with and care for each other that we don't um, generally think about because uh, U.S. policy is so focused on this single idea of the family. Um, and so our inability to think about the ways in which gender and sex are important, they do form the way that people make their lives. People do have values about this. They you know, care deeply about the ways in which they organize their intimate lives they care deeply about the ways in which they can find to you know care for each other These are all issues that matter a great deal that we in fact have um, trouble acknowledging that's the that's the undervaluing of gender and sexuality the overvaluing is the ways in which it can be invoked I what I argue is that gender and sexuality can be invoked to invoke a whole hiss a whole set of issues right so economic issues etc that's the kaleidoscope you put gender and sexuality in the center. And it has a configuration around it that is very powerful. Um, And at the same time, we could and should, I would argue, uh, pay much more attention to gender and sexuality and the ways in which people um, try to make their lives um, uh, uh, and care for each other.
1: So you mentioned... Um, earlier, um, mobility for stasis. Mm. So I'm wondering if we could um, unpack this term and if you can maybe share some examples that highlight the dynamics of, yeah. of this term.
0: And, and I'll give you two. One is to follow up on this question of the ways in which um, uh, gender and sexuality can be at the center of the kaleidoscope to, um, you know, pull a whole set of other issues in and then we turn it. Um, So there is, for example, a story about the 1970s in the United States around uh, religion that, again, most historians of religion now argue is inaccurate, but it's frequently told, which is that um, when um, evangelical Christians who are conservatives, so Christian conservatives, moved into um, U.S. political life in new ways in the 1970s, it was because of abortion politics. Um, And what I do is synthesize a set of histories about uh, the um, U.S. in the 1970s to show that, um, you know, as a number of historians have said, uh, this is not accurate, that it was uh, sex alone that that drove this issue, that in fact, we have a set of issues that include um, uh, racial politics and especially responses to Um, Efforts to desegregate U.S. public schools through busing and anti-busing efforts became connected to gender and sexual conservatism, became connected to um, arguments over the meaning of religious freedom and whether prayer, Christian prayer was allowed in public schools. But those also became connected to anti-communism and, um, you know, through figures like Billy Graham or through... um, uh, connections to uh, right-wing organizations like the John Birch Society, um, and it became you know, connected to a broader set of uh, economic issues that are tied to this question of the nuclear family becoming the, quote, traditional family, even though it was really a formation that only became predominant in the U.S. after World War II, but with suburbanization in particular, it became important. And all these things became a constellation Um, And that constellation moves around, so sometimes what comes to the fore is gender and sexuality, and we say, oh, no, it's, um, you know, abortion politics is the problem, and if we were just to remove reproductive justice from the way people talk about um, uh, politics, everything would be okay. Um, And now one of the things we see is that some people are now reading this history as if, oh, no, it's all white Christian nationalism, because that has come to the fore in certain ways, and we shouldn't talk about uh, Gender and sexuality, because you know that takes away uh, focus on race. When in fact these things are intertwined, that's what intersectionality means. And that not being able to address the relation between racism in the U.S., um, uh, Christian nationalism, and uh, gender and sexual gender and sexual politics is part of the problem. It, you know, separating these things is not not the solution. So the 1970s and the way in which these issues came together in a con- complex or a configuration that's held together, even as they move around each other, um, is one example. And then the second one I look at in the book is about um, U.S. Supreme Court cases, um, in which we see something similar, where um, in one moment uh, we say, oh, look, uh, you know, in in 2013, there was a first step toward what in 2015 became the legalization of same-sex marriage. And, um, you know, we were making progress on gender and sexuality, even as, and what I show is in fact, in the very same week as the, um, uh, beginnings of this opening to, uh, same sex marriage, which in that case in 2013 was the, um, declaring of the defense of marriage act unconstitutional. So we have this focus on progress for gay and lesbian rights, even as, uh, the same week it was announced that uh, uh, parts of the Voting Rights Act would uh, no longer be enforced. Um, And that decision, which was in a case called uh, Shelby County v. Holder, um, is having tremendous effects on um, the current electoral process because states that at one time had to um, uh, submit to federal oversight about plans with regard to voting restrictions have been enacting all kinds of voting restrictions that have had very similar effects to the ones uh, from before the Voting Rights Act, which is to make it harder for, uh, particularly for people of color to vote. And so um, that sense that um, there could be this focus on progress for gender and sexuality, and it really did, I again do an analysis of the press coverage during that week, and there was much more coverage on progress for gender and sexuality, in part covered over Uh, the ways in which uh, the country was really shifting back uh, quite directly on on questions of voting rights, and that the import of that decision um, really was diffused by its um, relation to talk about gender.
1: Can you more um, succinctly sort of
0: define what you mean by mobility for stasis? Oh, of course. Yeah, No, that's okay. No, in my notes, I had that one as, you know, right up front. So, (laughs) <laughs> um, yes, so um, so what I mean by mobility for stasis is this: um, th- there is a lot uh, going on in uh, U.S. politics all the time, and we have all kinds of ways in which our media also encourages the sense that there's a lot going on. We have, you know, 24-hour news channels, and um, you know, um, really not mainstream outlets like Politico that are just on, you know, what's happening in Washington today. Um, and so there's a lot of activity, but one of the things that I am particularly interested in is the basic issues around which this activity is going on seem to change very little. And I mean that in two ways. One, the political spectrum between the United States is not that broad. Um, It's broader in in other countries and and we move between sort of a center-left, center-right. But when I document consistency across... Uh, the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the current administration—part of what I'm showing is that there's not that much breadth, um, despite all that ac- this activity in our our political life in the United States. Um, and the other thing that remains stubbornly persistent are the injustices that our um, democracy is supposed to address. So, to go back to the example of voting rights. How is it that the United States, which was supposedly, again, in this um, uh, nationalist narrative, is supposedly founded on, you know, freedom and democracy. How is it that over these centuries now, we have had to repeatedly return to questions of who gets to vote and in particular to the ways in which um, African-American people coming out of slavery are denied the vote. And we also try to deny the vote to um uh, more people of color in the United States. So for example, voting rights um, in some states in the Southwest are focused on trying to prevent um, uh, Latinos from being able to vote, including you know not having uh, polling places in, in um, uh, particular neighborhoods and the like. So this question for me is, why is it that we should still be all these centuries later focused on um, trying to get the vote, this is very basic to any democratic possibility, to what will soon be the majority of, of, of people in the United States. Like, how is it that voting rights are still an issue? And it's that sense in which I'm interested in how it is that we have narratives, including the progress narrative, which maybe we can talk about some more, that make it seem like, oh, this is all getting better. Democracy is expanding. And yet we return time and time again um, to similar injustices. This is also true about housing segregation, about um, segregation in, in public schooling. There are all kinds of issues in which we just return to the same ground again and again and again. And That, what I'm trying to document in Mobility for Stasis, is the type of movement that leads back to the same hierarchies and injustices that have persisted, um, and that come from the colonial period, the founding of the nation, um, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and um, uh, slavery.
1: So you just offered a perfect segue. Why don't we talk about um, the progress narrative? What, it, what does this mean? And what does your, and you sort of, you alluded to this already, and, um, but what, how does your the idea of mobility for stasis challenge the, the commonly held progress narrative?
0: Right. And the progress narrative has different um, uh, versions to it or aspects to it. There's one sort of bigger narrative that... Um, is associated actually with the relationship between religion and secularism. And then there's a narrative that's specific to U S nationalism. The bigger narrative is that um, humanity is making progress and it's moving from uh, resolving conflicts around violence or, uh, political force in a way in which you know life is brutish and and short to the ability to um, resolve conflicts peacefully um, without force uh, and through what um, Jurgen Habermas calls the the, the the force of the better argument right so that there's a move toward reason um, as resolving uh, political conflict rather than than political violence um, and this narrative often puts religion as in the past. So one of the things that that um, uh, societies are progressing away from is uh, religion, religious commitment. Um, and again, you can see how religion gets associated with violence here. Um, and that reason is associated with secularism, with freedom, and uh, now with freedom from violence and, and from justice. And that big progress narrative Um, is uh, part of what I look at in the book and it's part of what Anne and I look at in the the Secularisms Project because it associates all these different things, secularism, freedom, equality, gender equality, etc., that then get drawn out in the particular narrative of uh, U.S. nationalism. And that U.S. nationalist uh, narrative, I, as I said, I, it could be um, summarized, um, as, as some historians do, as democracy expands, and I, that they use it as a, a shorthand for this narrative, in which the presumption is, well, yes, it's true. Um, when uh, U.S. democracy was first instituted, um, many of the founders were um, slaveholders um, uh, uh, Native American peoples were removed um, in many ways from the contract and from their homelands, um, and only men of property could vote, only men could vote. Um, These were all uh, problems, and and we recognize that they run counter to democracy. Uh, But the good part is that we have progressed from there, right? We have, um, you know, slavery was ended. Um, We opened uh, U.S. democracy with the 15th Amendment to African-American men voting. We opened uh, with the 19th Amendment uh, to women voting. Um, And so we just see this continuing expansion. And um, uh, part of what I'm interested in is, except for that, isn't exactly what happened. So why then did we need a Voting Rights Act in the 1960s? Um, for both African-American men and African-American women to be able actually to vote. Um, And so I'm interested in the progress that didn't happen. And one of the things, uh, to go back to the kaleidoscope, that I find is that this narrative about progress is often told in a stepping stone fashion. So first, one group moves forward to get their rights You know, the 15th Amendment, then the next group moves forward, the 19th Amendment, and it goes like that. And the way it's told in relation to more recent history is first um, African Americans came forward with the civil rights movement, then, you know, gay and lesbian people with their civil rights movement. And what that stepping stone narrative does is precisely um, hide the ways in which these issues are related to each other in these patterns or social configurations that we find and hide the way in which this mobility leads us back to the same point again and again and again. Um, so just as an example, right now in the state of Florida, there's a lot of contention between because in um, the 2018 um, uh, election cycle, uh, they voted on a referendum, the people of Florida did, and they voted to re-enfranchise people who had been convicted of felonies and who had had their voting rights denied to them. This was a you know direct popular vote, um, but then the legislature passed a law that says that... Um, Felons, yes, can vote because this is referendum is has, has passed, but they must first pay any fines that they owe, and this the fines that people are subjected to after incarceration are really complex, and um, um, often people, you know, don't have the economic means to pay them, and um, so it is effectively a poll tax, which is one of the things that 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 the um, Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were trying to undo is poll taxes. So we're now back to something that that. Um, was supposedly resolved in this democracy expands um, uh, narrative. And so part of what I'm trying to say is it's a good narrative and you can see where it comes from. There are things that are better, but there are also things that persistently never get better. Um, And that's one of the questions that I want to ask is why is that? Why does it feel like, as I say at one point in the book, social change is happening and yet many things never change? Um, and, um, that uh, part of what the book is about is trying to, to track that and then to think about ways in which we could shift our thinking and then our actions, um, so that they might, uh, actually, uh, change that we can contribute to, to more substantive, uh, transformation.
1: Um, okay. So to start wrapping up our interview, I'm going to ask you a question that you pose in the book, why sex?
0: Yes. um, You know, and the answer that I give at one point um, uh, is because religion, because sex, because everything. And what I mean by that is this. It's not that religion has no place in um, sexual politics in the United States. It clearly does. And by sexual politics, I I should have said this at the beginning. What I mean is... um, issues related to both gender and and sexuality um, and the ways in which gender and sexuality relate to politics as a whole. So it's a broad category. Um, And um, so I'm interested in the role that religion plays, but I am not interested in allowing that to be the only thing, um, because that covers over a whole set of commitments that are generally seen as secular um, like economic commitments and, and um, issues like immigration that we've been talking about, um, that are also committed to sexual regulation. So because religion, yes. Um, because sex, what I mean by that, and, and we've touched on this briefly, is that people have a lot of commitments about um, sexual politics, that that you know, sex doesn't always stand in for something else, um, that in fact gender and sexuality are important to people. One of the reasons, for example, that it's important to... Um, recognize um, people's uh, gender identities is precisely because this is central to how they live their lives, how they want to embody themselves. Everybody has a gender identity, and they organize their life in some way around this gender identity. And this includes, you know, being gender nonconforming is is a powerful statement about about, um, uh, gender and why it's important to resist, you know, simply being uh, locked into gender categories. So, um, you know, gender and sexuality are important in and of themselves. And as we touched on earlier, it would be helpful if we could talk about those kinds of commitments uh, directly. Um, you know, as I say, as Anne and I say in the book, and then I draw it more in the introduction, um, you know, sex is a source of values. People um, make lives based on what they value. And part of that is is through sexual practices that, that um, connect them to other people. The example that Anne and I use in Love the Sin is um, commitments to uh, caring for each other, to mutual aid during the AIDS pandemic. And we can see the ways in which um, these kinds of values about intimate relations and caring um, uh, could play out, hopefully, in this pandemic, where we could find ways to care for our neighbors in in, um, new and and different formations. So um, sexual politics, why sex? Because sex matters. And then the because everything is because it's... And it matters in part because... Uh, gender and sexuality are intertwined um, broadly in in, um, this full range of issues, um, some of which we've touched on today. Um, So um, that sense that we could attend to uh, sexual politics where we don't overvalue it, but where we could, you know, recognize it in the various places where It does uh, pop up. There's a moment um, when I draw on the work of uh, historian Ann Browdy, who says we should look for religion in unexpected places. That's a way to break out of the religion secularism binary. So, for example, there are a whole series of um, uh, worker centers in the United States that are about organizing uh, workers who are not necessarily the subject of of usual labor organizing in the U.S. So, restaurant workers, domestic workers, day laborers, etc. That's what worker centers do. Many of these are uh, driven by people of faith, there are interfaith centers, interfaith worker centers, but we rarely think of um, you know labor politics as simply a religious issue in the way that U.S. politics works out. Um, and similarly, I argue that we should think about sex in the places that it shows up, unexpected places though they may be, and that in doing so, we could open up uh, politics in a different way. That by uh, allowing, for example, a recognition of the ways in which people need people beyond their individual families. Um, as so many people are finding who are trying to educate their, their children online right now, where, yeah, we need schools, right? We need people who care for children who are not just the parents of these children. Um, that thinking about sexual politics more broadly could also provide a way out and a way to rethink a number of issues, such as the relationship between gender and sexuality housing and um, the environment or gender and sexuality housing and urban policy. Um, this is not the usual way we would talk about it, and I think it could help to um, uh, open things up in in, in new ways um, and uh, think more broadly about about the way in which we uh, create our social worlds.
1: To, to conclude on a broad note, I'm wondering if you could tell us what you're working on now.
0: Yeah. So at the very end of the book, what I talk about in terms of trying to put this idea of the ways in which sexual politics could help us to build a different politics is what i call building justice from the ground up um, and what i mean by that is a lot of things i have discovered um, and so my new book is on that specifically but in this book what i mean by that is how do people actually live their lives um, let us start there so rather than saying we know what is a good uh, arrangement of gender and sexuality it is you know a heterosexual marriage therefore we will spend all kinds of you know public monies, tax monies on marriage promotion, even though there's very little data that shows that this helps people either stay married or get out of poverty. Um, but instead, Justice from the Ground Up looks at how do people live their lives and how can we attend to that in ways that create social policy that that help them to realize their values. And I turn here to um, uh, disability activism in particular. My partner is, lives with a spinal cord injury and uh, uses a wheelchair, and I'm interested in the ways in which um, attending to the needs of disabled people. And there's no single paradigmatic, you know, disabled person. Um, you know, there's all kinds of needs, you know, environmental illness, um, uh, vision impairments, etc., that we could attend to. But one of the things that we find in disability activism is that if you attend to the needs of disabled people, you often make the world better for um, many more people than just. Disabled people and I use the example of curb cuts. So, if you were in New York City, where there are cuts in the curbs, as there are in many cities, um, uh, to allow for wheelchair access, what you find is everybody uses them. Walking people go through them. People with uh, strollers, baby strollers, use them. People with carts, because you have to um, often are walking and carrying groceries around in in the um, in New York. So, this sense of something that was supposedly specific to disabled people actually creates a more universal. Um, A set of possibilities. And similarly, attending to the lives that people live in terms of gender and sexuality uh, could create a world that would be better for a lot of people. Um, So attending to the ways in which people are making quarantine pods right now could help us to think about how we would um, make social policy that could support people in communities that are uh, sustainable. So these are some of the things that I think about in terms of justice from the ground up. And my new book is precisely about this. I'm actually thinking about what comes out of the ground. I'm taking a, a class um, uh, at the um, uh, in forestry right now, in forest dynamics, trying to think about how things literally grow from the ground and then building from there through examples like housing policy and caring labor um, to be able to try to think about what is it that actually could sustain social life in a new and different way? And how could we um, uh, make policy that attends to that?
1: Well, thank you so much, Janet, for joining us today. It really was a pleasure talking to you about um, this book and also hearing about your future projects. So thank you so much. Um, the Sex Obsession, Perversity and Possibility in American Politics is out now.
0: Thank you.